We are continuing our study as a church through the book of Acts, and in a couple months we will have preached through all of Acts. This morning we're going to pick back up in Acts chapter 19. So if you have uh, your own Bible, open it up. It's the fifth book in the New Testament. If you don't have one, that is okay. We'll have the passage on the screen, or you can grab one of those black pew Bibles in front of you. It's on page 928. 928. The book of Acts is the book following the life and ministry of Jesus. As the church begins and begins to expand throughout the world, Acts tells us the history. And this morning we're going to be reading about 30 verses. We're going to read it all here in the beginning in one time, then we'll be referring to it as we go throughout the sermon. But this is a, a passage with a couple scenes of excitement. So please look in your Bibles at verse 11 of chapter 19. This is the word of the Lord. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that he had touched, his skin, were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts bought, brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in his spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with this confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them... Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were with Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. 
And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another, but if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. When he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. That is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, as your word in Psalm 119 says, make your face shine upon us and teach us your statutes and your ways. Spirit, help us. Amen. Here, this is a a classic story of the missionary and pastor Paul. There's boldness by Paul, then there's conflict, there's lives changed, there's mobs, there's riots, there's uproars. I mean, Paul lived a very excited and energetic life. He's a very unique man. God called him to be a leader in the early church in the few decades following the death and resurrection of Jesus. So this Paul would travel from region to region, going into temples, going into pagan places, and preaching about Jesus. And we see here, classically, what happens when the real Jesus is preached. Some believe and are changed, and others become combative and aggressive. This is Paul's life and ministry, and this happens over and over again. And in our passage, we have two kind of bigger scenes. One involves some Jewish magicians and exorcists. And the other involves some pagan idol worshipers. But both come face to face with the message of Jesus. It confronts them their entire lives. And that's the point of the message of Jesus. Jesus doesn't want just a part of you. He doesn't just want your Sunday mornings. He doesn't just want your language to be cleaned up a little bit. He doesn't just want your morality to change and adapt to Him. No, Jesus is going to confront you because He wants all of you. And so when Paul comes in and preaches to people that you need to give your entire life to Christ, no matter the cost, reactions are going to abound. Conflict happens, but for those who do hear the message and receive the message and give their entire being to Jesus, they find absolute satisfaction and joy, and riots and conflict can't overtake that. 
So overall here, Paul is boldly proclaiming Jesus to all who hear it. And the main point of our sermon is the main point of what Paul's communicating in our story. And here it is. There is nothing that can compete with Jesus. There's nothing that can compete with Jesus. He alone is great, and He alone is worthy of your entire devotion. There is no competition for Jesus. We daily, probably hourly, have to decide if something is worth our attention. Probably every hour, right? Is this task at work more important than this task? Is this hamburger going to be tastier to me than this sandwich? Is this movie on Netflix going to be more enjoyable than that one? Even those little things in life, we often are so, 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 so going to give ourselves to. We are so picky at what we give our attention to. If something does not, is not worth our time or does not match up perfectly to our tastes, or our interests, we say no and choose something else. We are surrounded by things competing for our attention, and we weigh the options and we make decisions. And we may not consciously acknowledge this or not, but our world and things in our life are directly competing with Jesus. Think about it. Any, any sinful temptation, a lie, a word of gossip that comes up into our minds, a lust after someone else. These are all things simply trying to compete with Jesus. And our brain and our heart, we have to choose moment by moment, are we going to choose this thing or are we going to choose Jesus? What is going to win this competition? Every day you might have to choose, am I going to spend time maybe reading my Bible and praying to Jesus or is it more important for me to accomplish the laundry or get to work that much earlier? Even in those moments, we are choosing what is more valuable to our attention and our devotion. And in our passage today, Paul is boldly proclaiming and clearly proclaiming that there is a lot in our world competing with Jesus. Sin, false gods, idols, and all these things have nothing on Jesus. Nothing. Jesus alone is great. Jesus alone is supreme. He is the creator of all things. And everything else is a step down or artificial or it's cheap or it's empty compared to Jesus. And he deserves our undivided attention and our full devotion. And to prove this truth, there are three things about Jesus himself that we learn in this text. Three things that show us he is worth our entire devotion. And the first is this, that Jesus is powerful. Jesus is powerful. The first scene in this passage involves exorcists and magicians. Now by exorcists, we mean individuals who are believed to have the power to cast out demons of people possessed by demons. So through a series of chanting or laying on of hands, or even praying to some type of God, these Jewish exorcists would seek to free a person from demon possession. Now this is not the text for us to talk at length about demon possession. But I think a few things are helpful for us. First of all, the casting out of demons 
is one of the most popular miracles in the New Testament, which seems strange to us. We often only think of casting out of demons being in some horror movies, but if you read through the Gospels or even more ministry of Paul, 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 and why is that? I believe it's because the casting out of a demon is probably the most visible display of the gospel besides the death and resurrection of Jesus. You literally have someone being controlled by darkness, by the devil, by a demon, and a Christian comes in or Jesus comes in and literally takes out the demon of a person. What an example and illustration of what happens to you and I when we turn to Jesus. The domain of darkness defeated, now walking in the light. So as you read the Bible, you're going to see a lot of this casting out of demons. But also I want to mention that I believe that demon possession, like where a demon aggressively and violently overtakes someone, it, it, it still happens today, it happens in places, but I don't think it's as common as it was during the New Testament age. And I think that's because the gospel has advanced. The message of Jesus has gone out. There are local churches and there are missionaries and the gospel directly attacks the influence of Satan. It's still out there. It's still possible. I've heard stories about demon possession. I think we don't need to undervalue Satan and the devil. He is real and active. We like to kind of stay comfortable and avoid him. But I also think that we have the gospel. And that's why I believe, I think the Bible is very clear on this, that a Christian, someone who belongs to Jesus, cannot be overtaken or possessed by a demon. You have the Holy Spirit in you. How can a demon come in you? You are no longer under the threat of the devil. You've been bought with a price and you belong to Jesus. And in this story, you have a bunch of Jewish exorcists who prided themselves on coming into towns with people who are sick, people who have demons, and trying to cast them out. But these Jewish exorcists become jealous and intimidated by Paul. Paul was so empowered by the gospel, someone who was sick or possessed by a demon could touch it and they'd be healed. That's how powerful Jesus is in the life of Paul. So these Jewish exorcists who have this whole process of trying to cast out a demon get very jealous. And they think, if we don't do something, this Paul's going to run us out of our business. So these Jewish exorcists begin to copycat Paul. They become imitators of Paul. And it says in verse 13, they walked up to a demon-possessed man and they said, By the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims, be cast out. It's like if a random stranger walks up to your well-trained dog and says, sit. Your dog's probably not going to listen to the stranger. That's what happens here. The evil spirit now, demons and, and evil spirits are not to be messed with or laughed at, but this is kind of witty. This demon speaks up and says, who are you? I know Jesus. I know Paul, but you copycats, what are you trying to doing? Why are you riding on his coattails and what happens? These before the masses, showing that they have no power compared to Jesus. So it says throughout the city, in this story, the gospel spread and the people respected the name of Jesus. They heard about the power of simply the name of Jesus and they fell down in worship. They saw the failure 
and the weakness of these so-called Jewish exorcists. And they saw, 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 and the strength of Jesus. These Jewish exorcists were no match for Jesus. I played baseball about 11, 12 years of my life. When I was 11 or 12, we played in a, 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 league. So we would travel to cities on the weekends and play in tournaments. And I was 11, 12 years old, and before one of our tournaments, we, we get there and our coach says, hey guys, don't, don't worry about this, but you're going to be playing against 14 and 15 year olds, but you guys are going to be just fine. Well, guess what happened? We were not fine. We played this one team, and I swear today that they were the New York Yankees disguising themselves as Little League baseball players. My dad has a picture of me up to bat against this team. And I'm, I'm, I'm standing straight up with my bat. And the catcher, who's literally squatting behind me, is taller than me. And the only batter who got on base that game was me. And you know how I got on base? I took a ball off the helmet. My dad has a picture of it, actually. The only way that I could get on base was by a mistake by the pitcher. That we were no match for this 15-year-old all-star team who were the New York Yankees. They had age on us, strength, skill. It was not fair. And that's like what these Jewish exorcists are against Jesus. Amateur little leaguers playing against the New York Yankees. Right? Jesus is strong. He is powerful. He is mighty. They are not. But the scene also talks about magicians who practice magical arts. Now, this is not pulling a bunny out of a hat or doing a card trick in Vegas. These magical arts were full of pagan practices. These magicians believed they had the power through chanting of spells, reading spell books. They'd expect there to be some spiritual intervention happening in people's lives. And as these magicians heard about the name of Jesus and how powerful he was against the Jewish exorcists, it says in verse 18 and 19 that these magicians came and confessed and divulged of their practices. Divulge means to announce or to disclose or to be honest about what their sins are. They came confessing, we've been pursuing magic and pagan gods and reading these weird chants, pursuing dark magic, and now they came forward honestly and said, we're going to give that up and we're going to Jesus. And it says that they burned their magical spell books, the things that apparently gave them power, they burned them. Why? Because Jesus is so powerful that they would give up their jobs, their false beliefs, their living, and burn it all because they have the powerful Jesus. Now, we don't walk out on Bridge Street here in Chippewa or Barstow Road down in Eau Claire and find magicians or exorcists. You might find hipsters, but that's a little bit of a different thing. But there are devils. There's a devil. There's demons. There's slavery to sin. There's a darkness and domain. There's bad things out there spiritually. It's reality. Satan is real. And wherever there are things rejecting Jesus, that's where darkness is. That's where the devil resides. That's where he's pleased. He's pleased when people in our world choose things opposed to Christ. But when someone chooses Christ and gives their life and their attention and their devotion to Christ, that darkness 
is infiltrated with light. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So before you, Christian, were a Christian, you were a citizen of the darkness of the devil. Whether you knew it or not, whether you consciously were aware, you were right where the darkness and the devil wanted you. But because of Jesus... Because he died and he took your darkness on himself and because he resurrected and when that tomb was opened and the light of the resurrection shone outward, you are now a citizen of the kingdom of God. Not darkness, not hell, not guilt, not shame, not legalism, none of that. Satan has been defeated in your life and now you are walking in newness, not in the grip of Satan, but fully set free. And that's what happened in the only one who is powerful enough to infiltrate the devil and darkness and demons and sin is Jesus. Not you, not your morality, not your good behavior, not your bank account, not your resume, not Washington, D.C. Nothing can infiltrate the darkness except Jesus. He alone is powerful enough to infiltrate it. But Christian, we also, though we know that, we can forget that the devil is still real. We've been set free. We have an inheritance that can, 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 that can. We're still on this side of eternity and we are saved, we're delivered, we're free, and yet we're still sinners. And we are tempted. We're going to be facing temptation, things that are competing with Jesus. So when you are in a spat of depression... Or when work becomes extremely stressful and you begin to look for an escape, you may be tempted, for example, to turn to drunkenness. I don't mean a drink here and there. I mean tempted to drink yourself as a distraction to the chaos of life. And in that moment, you have to choose to trust that Jesus is more powerful than a hectic work life. You have to choose, 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 than the bottle of liquor you are holding. When you go to bed at night after a rough day, do you say, I'm safe because I have Jesus? Or are we saying, I'm safe because I have a bottle of alcohol? We can turn to Jesus for relief and know that even in the chaos of work, when we come home with headaches, that he is powerful enough to take care of us. Because he's infiltrated the devil. Or friend, you may be tempted to look at pornography. Men, women, listen. The devil loves the secrecy of pornography. Pornography is the creation and the domain of the devil. And you look at it, it might be a, might be a relief for you or a distraction from life. And yet it is just a deeper dive into the domain of darkness. And yet Jesus, he is powerful. Powerful enough to free you and powerful enough to give you more joy and honesty and relief and happiness than pornography could ever deliver on. Why? Because he infiltrated the darkness. The devil is gone. So whether it be drunkenness or pornography or workaholism or pride or whatever it is that's competing against Jesus, it is not powerful enough to give you what you truly want. 
It will not free you from emptiness or sin. Only Jesus can do that because he alone defeated death. So do you want to see change in the world? Do you want to see pornography become illegal or abortion eliminated? Do you want to stop seeing gossip and negativity and judgment all the time on social media? Do you actually want to see people unified and not divided? Washington can't do that. Education can't do that. Jesus can do that. So with Jesus, our sin and our temptations and our past and our trauma, all of that do not have to reign in our lives because we have the powerful Jesus and nothing can compete with him. So why would we settle for less? Why would we settle for something cheap and artificial that can't actually deliver us? We have Jesus and we can rest at night and be okay even if we feel everything is crumbling because we have the powerful Jesus. But also, we learn that Jesus is satisfying. He's not just powerful, but secondly, Jesus is satisfying. He's not just strong and powerful, not just mighty, but he is sweet to us. He is someone we can rejoice in. We can actually enjoy Jesus. And I mean that, fully enjoy him. He's not some abstract guy in the sky that we admire. We can actually personally enjoy him. He is satisfying to us. And these magicians in our story found Christ pleasing, way more pleasing than magic and false gods. Look again at verse 18. It says, Many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. These magicians saw the power of Jesus and were amazed, but they also saw that he was way more valuable, way more satisfying than anything in their lives. They literally took their magic spell books and burned them. They gave up all they knew in their life because they found Jesus that much more enjoyable. They didn't just give Jesus one day of the week. They didn't just carve out a little bit of time for him in a nook in their house. They, they gave up their entire life because all that they knew was that Jesus was way more valuable. And all the magicians here, it says they piled up their spell books and it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a chunk of change. You could run off and drive off into the sunset with that much money and be good the rest of your life. But they didn't even care about the money. They burned all that stuff because they'd rather have joy in Jesus. He's satisfying and he is valuable. It reminds me of words of, of Jesus in Matthew 13. Jesus says this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Jesus speaks in a parable here, a story that a man finds treasure buried, so he goes and sells everything else in his life so he can get enough money to just have that field, and he will live, enjoy the rest of his life in that field. And that field, by the way, is Jesus. He is so satisfying 
that these magicians can give up their entire lives, what they knew, their possessions, and still not lack joy because they have Christ. And there is this common stereotype that Christians are nice people who have given up their fun lifestyles. There's a stereotype that God doesn't really care about our happiness. He only cares about our holiness and our morality and following rules. People think Christianity is for boring people. It's kind of like how I used to view people who bought minivans. I, I thought they were lame until I got one, and now I feel like my life is complete. But unfortunately, at times, Christianity has acted like that. Right? I, was, I was in a church years ago. I was a member there, and I opened a drawer of a cabinet in the church office, and I found a bunch of old cards from the 1930s, and they were membership cards applications to sign up to join this church. And you put in your contact information, your address, all that stuff. But at the bottom, it asked a series of questions like this. Do you play cards? Do you go to the movie theater? Do you dance? In other words, do you try and have fun? It's kind of like them saying, don't drink, don't chew, and don't go with girls who do. Christianity is often pegged as that kind of church, but in reality, if a church is boring, I think that church misses the mark. True Christianity is not trading in a life of happiness for rules. Christianity is upgrading to the full and real and authentic joy and happiness and fun. You can dance, you can play cards, you can go watch baseball, okay? You can do all that, but also, guess what? You get Jesus, who is joy. You get a church, you get life in the Spirit who causes your soul to rejoice all the more as you pursue Him. Jesus said in John 10.10, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. Not just a different life, but the full life. Not mediocre, not just getting by, but a full, happy, and satisfied life. So just like anyone else, you Christian can go marvel at the Grand Canyon. You can go water ski on the Chippewa River. You can go enjoy a baseball game. But we get to do it knowing that those are all gifts from Jesus, and Jesus is more joyful than all of those good things even combined. It's a double win. So just how these magicians traded in their jobs and their lives and their pursuits for Jesus, we need to trust that Jesus is more satisfying than anything else in our world. And that is what makes Christianity unique, that we can find joy and delight, not in circumstances, not in feelings in the moment, but but in Jesus we can find happiness. So you can lose your entire health and still be happy. We can be poor as dirt and still be satisfied in Jesus. We can live mundane days at work, watching time go by, and be satisfied in Jesus. That's what makes Christianity so unique. So temptation is going to come to us, church, and it's going to say, I'm going to satisfy you. Cut this corner, say that lie, look at that person, that's what you need. It will give you happiness and pleasure. But Jesus, he already satisfied that longing. He died on the cross paying for your sin. He resurrected to bring you new life of joy. Jesus will never fail to deliver. But that sin, when you commit it, you're going to realize soon enough, it failed to deliver. It always does. 
And yet Jesus, has he ever failed to satisfy? No, nothing can compete with him. So church, by the way, we can have fun here. Yes, we come to worship God. But we can have a, We can laugh and sing loudly. We can let our kids run through the halls. We can make memories. We can laugh, have fun together as a church because in Jesus we are happy and satisfied. And do you think eternity is going to be boring? So we pray that this place is only going to be more fun and joy-filled because that's who Jesus is and we can give up everything in our lives and still find happiness. And that's good news. Up by St. Joe's Hospital, there's a place called Wissota Vent. And I've been there at, a chap- at the chapel service several times to, to preach. And the residents there are all wheeled in on beds, hooked up to mobile ventilators. And they all come in, and their physical life is confined to a bed. Their life is literally only continuing because they're hooked up to a monitor. And yet they have joy and happiness. Why? Because they have Jesus. They have lost the very things that you and I often are tempted to cling to for security and for happiness and for meaning in life. They have literally lost it all, and yet they have Jesus, and they are happy in Him. That is Christianity, and that's the message we need to proclaim. He is powerful. He is satisfying. But the last one, the briefest one, is serious. Jesus is confrontational. Paul arrives in Ephesus. There's this huge shrine to Artemis, a Greek goddess. She's a female god who valued fertility and sex, and her statue resides in such an extravagant and beautiful temple that it was one of the seven wonders of the world in the ancient world. Huge columns, 127 columns, all 60 feet high, and there's this man named Demetrius, and his job was he would sculpt little mini statues of Artemis that he would sell on the street corners, probably promising spiritual health or good health or things to be done, and he would sell them and make money. And Paul's reputation of talking about Jesus began to influence people to turn their backs on Artemis, this Greek god. So Demetrius gets upset. If Paul continues to preach, he's going to go bankrupt. And also, by the way, Artemis is going to be counted as nothing. This Greek god's going to be exposed. So these sculptors and Demetrius all come together and they riot and they rally. I'm not going to read this again, but they come face to face with Paul and his followers and a riot begins. But overall, what happens is Jesus and his gospel confronted these false God worshipers. Jesus came face to face with Demetrius and their idols, and the true God came face to face, and something has to budge. Jesus confronts us in our sin. And this is what the gospel does. The gospel is not easy. It's not a little frosting on the cake. It's the entire cake. The gospel doesn't just demand someone's part of someone's life, but it demands their whole life. And through Paul, Jesus confronts Demetrius, and he, commun- and he confronts us today. But he's not doing it as a bully. He's not doing it as some aggressive, mean guy in the sky. He's confronting us 
out of his love confront you with your sin and your idolatry so he doesn't leave us there. He comes face to face with us and clearly asks us, who are you going to worship? Who are you going to give your life to? Who do you belong to? Who are you going to let rule your life? And when someone hears the gospel, that we are all sinners and that Jesus alone can save us, they are confronted. In that moment, they have to decide in that moment, are we going to go with Jesus or not? He, the thing about Jesus that I love is he's direct. He's clear. It's this way or that way. And he's asking us, inviting us to take an honest assessment of our lives and our pursuits. He's asking us to look deep into our hearts and see our true selves, our sin, our shortcomings, our doubts, our weaknesses, our hurts. And he's confronting us. Why? So he can apply the sweet medicine of grace. You can't get help if you don't know you need help. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Only if you have a heavy burden are you going to want that burden off of you. It takes confrontation. Jesus saying, I see this in you, but I also see a more glorious future in you. He's asking us to give up ourselves fully. Christianity is not a weekend stroll. It's an all-out, everyday commitment to Jesus. And Jesus doesn't want fair-weather fans. He wants disciples. It's about to be playoff baseball season, and I cheer for the White Sox. And I watch a lot of White Sox games throughout the year. And when you watch the stadium early on, the stadium's almost empty. But if they get good, what happens? People come out. When they get bad again, people leave. Fair-weather fans. Jesus is not looking just for attendance here in life, a little bit there. He's looking for sold-out people who've been confronted in their sin and want to fully be saved by Him and fully follow Him. And the good news is, it is worth it. When we're confronted by Jesus and we choose Jesus, we find happiness and salvation. We find the remedy for all the stuff we've been holding in and dealing with our whole lives. He was sold out for us. He laid down His life for us fully. And He's inviting us by confronting our sin to then apply the sweet medicine of grace. He is confronting us so he can unleash his grace on us. So in his grace, he confronts us. So how will you respond? If you have not responded to Jesus, what are you going to do? Respond with maybe anger or bitterness or self-righteousness? Are you going to ignore and say, I'll deal with that later when I'm older? Or are you going to be honest with yourself and vulnerable and find sweet relief and grace from Jesus. He loves us enough to confront us. But also, Christians, this might be for you as well, a wake-up call to come back to your first love, to be sold out, fully devoted, giving Him our full attention. We may feel confronted this morning, convicted, and that's the grace of Jesus. Jesus is looking for true disciples who recognize that nothing can compete with him, that there's nothing that deserves our full devotion and attention but him. He is the prize. He's the treasure in the field, and we get to keep digging for him every single day, and that's a pursuit that's worth doing. Let's pray.
Father, I pray that we will all see you as that treasure in a field that is worth giving up our entire lives for, that we will find you sweet and pleasing, and that if we are convicted this morning, if we are confronted, that we will find our relief in you. Jesus, we praise you, and we praise you that nothing and no one can compete with you. You alone are God and great. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.